Well, good morning, church family. My name is Nick. If anybody's visiting for the first time, I'm so glad that you're here. I get to be the pastor here, and uh, we get to gather together as a church this morning. So I want to give you a couple uh, exciting updates about what's going on at our church. We are, if you've been following with us on this whole purchasing another piece of land out on Love Lane, we are probably seven to ten days away from closing on that land, and that's very exciting. They've done the uh, boundary realignment that they had to do, and so we are moving forward with that, and that's very exciting. And then the other thing I wanted to say is, I said this last week, but uh, just a reminder, uh, people from leadership in the Christian Missionary Alliance from all over the world are going to Spokane, Washington. Uh, We're leaving today, and tomorrow starts our general council that we have every couple years. It is uh, the highest governing entity within our denomination, and anytime there are big decisions to be made, it happens there. And so if you'd be praying this week for that and all the things that are going on, important decisions that are being made, I would be honored to have you pray for us. With that, will you pray with me this morning as we jump back into the Word of God? Lord, thank you so much for your Word, for your Gospel stories. I'm having an amazing time just reading through your Word, through the Gospels, and trying to uh, put together this meta-narrative of your life. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have to share with us this morning. We love you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said, we are journeying through the gospel accounts in a chronological order, attempting to take all four gospels and put them into one linear story. We've been doing that. This is week seven, and we've just now got to Jesus being born. So it's going to take a while to get through all the gospels, but I'm enjoying it. I hope you are as well. Last week we talked about uh, Jesus' circumcision and his naming uh, ceremony when he was only eight years old eight days old, and we read read two amazing stories of some older saints who were in the temple when Jesus was brought to be uh, dedicated, basically, and we read the story of Simeon and Anna, two older followers of God that had dedicated themselves to the things of the Lord for their whole lives, and at the end of their lives, they are blessed to see the coming of the Messiah. Today we're going to take a look at a part of this story that's often thought to be part of the birth story of Jesus, but it's actually not. It takes place later. This is another week where it feels a little weird to be talking about something in May that we normally only talk about in December, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to see these scriptures, and we're going to look at the people's reactions to Jesus, which I think is incredibly important for us to look at. So if you have your Bible, if you have a device, open up to Matthew chapter 2. That's going to be our main text for today. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east And they came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. We're going to stop there for a second. Like I said, most uh, people think 
as they've heard the traditional story, if, if you see the little uh, nativity sets, there's always the wise men. And if you've been with me for any amount of time, you know I get annoyed when the wise men are on the nativity set because they're not supposed to be there. So I always take them. I find the farthest east point in my house, and I put them there in that corner. That's where you belong. Also, we have no idea if there was three of them. That's another tradition because there was three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they say there's three wise men. There could have been 100 wise men. There could have been 12 wise men. We have no idea. At some point, somebody even named them, which is hilarious. They just like made up names like, this is the wise men. No, we don't know who they were. All we know is they were magi, which means wise men, that came from the far east. They have gone really far out of their way to find them. But again, we don't actually know exactly who they are. Let's continue. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So notice that. We're going to come back to this. But notice that the religious leaders know exactly where Jesus or the Messiah was supposed to be born. They, they know exactly. They have the prophetic word, and they know. And then we see in this story Herod. We've talked about Herod before. But King Herod was a descendant of the Edomites who were commonly called the Edomians during Jesus' time. His father was Edomite, but his mother was Jewish. And in these days, one of the worst things that you could be in Israel was part Jewish. There was a very real racism that would take place to anybody who was not full-blooded Jewish. And so Herod is put in this position of leadership, and they actually refer to him as the king of the Jews, but he's not even fully Jewish. And so you can see why the Jewish people more and more are pushing against this because he's not fully Jewish. And worse than that, he works for Rome. He's a half Jewish leader who works for the people who are taking advantage of them. He had been the ruler of Galilee from about 47 to 37 BC. And then he's promoted to king over all of Palestine. And he becomes famous for building cities and fortresses and temples throughout the land. But he's generally opposed by all the Jewish people because of his Edomite ancestry. In around 40 BC, sorry, I'm giving a little bit of Herod history lesson here. The Persians had joined together with the Jewish people, and they pushed the Romans and Herod out of Palestine. But three years later, he comes back with the Romans and takes control. And at that point, he is declared the king of the Jews. And Herod is a guy who has a very cruel streak to him. And his character begins to show increasingly as he gets older. His mental instability was fed by his feeling that somebody was always trying to take his position of authority. After all is said and done in his life, he had murdered his own wife, 
their two sons, his brother-in-law, his grandfather-in-law, and his mother-in-law. Because he was sure that somebody was trying to take his authority from him. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, tells us that when Herod was near death, he was worried that nobody would mourn for him because everyone hated him. And so he ordered that a large number of men who are well-respected be brought to his town, and at the moment of his death, that they all be killed as well, so that people in the streets would mourn for them, even if they wouldn't mourn for him. Now, luckily, the people who were left in charge after he died did not follow through on that order. And so that didn't happen. But this is the kind of man that we're dealing with. Herod only cares about retaining his own power and authority. And this is the man who is the leader over Israel when Jesus is born as a baby in the flesh. A man who has wrongly been declared the king of the Jews. A man who craves nothing but power and authority and will do anything to keep it. Interestingly, we have this other group of people that's talked about in this story, right? The chief priests. I mentioned this briefly. You have Herod, and then you have the chief priests of the Jewish people, the ones who were supposed to be looking for the Messiah, right? Because the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah for thousands of years. They're the ones who are supposed to be watching and waiting, and they know full well that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But when Jesus is born, guess what? They're not there. They're not actually looking for the Messiah. They're sitting back in their hometown, just kind of comfortable doing whatever they want to do. Let's pick up Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Spoiler alert, he's lying. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So like I said, this doesn't take place the morning that Jesus is born. It's probably anywhere from two months to two years after his birth. They're not in a cave or a barn anymore. It says they're in a house. These men have traveled a great distance, the star kind of guiding them to Jesus. And when they finally find him, they fall down and they worship him. And they give him these gifts. And each of these gifts has a specific meaning. If you were with us at Christmas time, we talked about this, but I wanted to go through it again. The myrrh is a really weird gift to give a baby. Myrrh is a burial spice. It is something that represents that Jesus is a prophet, one that would die for proclaiming the truth. It's a strong ointment used to cover the smell of death. It's not something that you brought a newborn, but it was a common gift that you would bring someone 
who had just lost a family member. Bringing myrrh to a baby shower would literally be like bringing embalming fluid to a baby shower today. You're just like, here's for when the baby dies. Like, it's a pretty weird gift. Can you imagine taking that gift to an expecting mother? And she'd be like, well, you're not invited to anything ever again. This is weird. <sighs> bring myrrh. They bring frankincense. This is a type of incense like the kind that people still burn today. It represented that Jesus would have the role of a priest. The use of incense for the Jewish people goes all the way back to the time of Aaron, Moses' brother. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the great high priest and he is the only one that can be the true mediator between us and man, us and God. And of course, they bring gold. It's a gift that you would bring for a king. They brought Jesus gold because he was king, and not just king of the Jewish people, but king over all of creation. And this is the gift that would have got the most attention from Herod if he heard about it. Because they're bringing Jesus a kingly gift. And he's currently the king over Israel. And this gift means that they're honoring Jesus, not just as a religious figure, but as the king of a kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of Herod. And those three gifts together, when you look at gold and frankincense and myrrh, they represent something even bigger that the Old Testament has told them for generations, for thousands of years, that the Messiah would be all three things, prophet, priest, and king. And that he will be the only one that can be prophet, priest, and king. And so they're saying this is exactly who this baby boy is, the Messiah. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod is so obsessed with his own power and so evil in his own heart that when he hears this child who is the potential usurper to his throne has been born and he can't track him down, he just calls for infanticide of all of the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area. We have no idea how many children that is. But regardless of the number, it's a horrible thing. We see the links that a man who is driven by greed and power and sin will go to 
in order to retain his own kingdom. And in this story, as a whole, I think we see something really interesting. I've talked about this before, but I want to say it again. Is In this story, I think we have a choice before us. There are three ways that people respond to Jesus when they come into contact with him. And we see all of them in this story. Those three ways are hostility, indifference, and worship. Herod is the perfect example of hostility. When he comes into contact with Jesus, his reaction is extreme hostility. Jesus represented a challenge to the life that Herod has built for himself and that he wants to keep. For Herod, Jesus means possibly losing the power and authority and pleasure and prestige that he has loved having. While Herod's level of hostility and actions may have been greater in impact than most people, we still see that there are people all over the world that when they come face to face with the idea that Jesus is Lord and Savior, their reaction is hostile. They don't want anybody to rule over their lives because they want to be the king or the queen of their own life. And anybody trying to usurp that throne is a problem for them. But honestly, if you really think about it, why wouldn't people react that way? If you have built an entire life that is built only on your own pleasure, then of course you're going to react hostily to something that says you are not in charge of yourself. People are going to revolt against him and all that he stands for. If your entire life revolves around power and pleasure and prestige or your own intelligence or your accomplishments or your ego, basically if your whole life revolves around you, then you are not going to react well when somebody comes and says, it's actually not about you. This whole world doesn't revolve around you. And so Herod reacts hostily. When we live for those things, when we live for our own glory, we build these little kingdoms. We place ourselves firmly on the throne of our own little kingdom, and any threat to our authority as the king of our own kingdom is met with hostility just like it does for Herod. But Jesus comes, and he brings a new kingdom. And his kingdom is diametrically opposed to the kingdoms of this world, to the kingdoms that we build for ourselves, because our kingdoms are built for his own glory, and his is for God's glory. Our kingdoms seek to build our power, and he exists because God already has all the power. Our little kingdom is built for our comfort, and yet his kingdom seeks to comfort the broken. Ours is for our happiness, and his exists to bring holiness. Ours is for prestige, and his is for humility. Simply put, our kingdoms are selfish. They are built for me. But his kingdom is built on the ultimate sacrificial love. But here's the biggest thing that I think people really struggle with when they, when they have to come face to face with this. Those little kingdoms that we build are false. They're not real kingdoms. They don't stand up 
they will fail ultimately no matter what because in the end there's only one true king and we all live in his kingdom and yet again and again people react with hostility because it stands opposed to what they want for themselves so we see him acting with hostility there's another group of people that act indifferent they're just indifferent they they kind of act like jesus doesn't really matter and they're sort of like that's great that jesus is over there that's cool that's your thing that's not my thing And here's one of the scariest parts of this story to me, is if you read through this story carefully, you will see the people who act indifferent are the religious people. The religious leaders are the ones that know where Jesus is supposed to be born, and yet when he's born, they're not even there. They're busy doing their own things, building their own little kingdoms, and they're saying, like, "Ah, I don't need to worry about that. He's born right down the road from them. They know exactly where he's supposed to be, and yet they aren't even looking for him. And yet, maybe they're a little weary of waiting, but I think they're also just comfortable. They've built their own lives. They've built their own thing. And so they're just going to live their lives. (coughs) Everything's going well. They're respected. They're revered for their knowledge. Everything is just fine. Sometimes the people who know the most about God are the ones who aren't actually seeking God. This can actually be a worse reaction to Jesus than hostility. In the book of Revelation, God tells the church at Laodicea, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Acting indifferent to Jesus does not absolve us from the reality of who he is. God tells us he would rather us be hot or cold than to act indifferently. And in the end, (coughs) indifference towards Jesus leads us to the same place that hostility does. Eternity without him. And then there's a third group in the story. Those whose reaction to Jesus is to worship him. Sorry. There are these magi. These guys who we know almost nothing about. Like, they're... They're such a mysterious group of people because they're from the east. We don't know who they are, but they're the ones who are actually seeking God. They're the ones trying to find the Messiah. And when they find him, they have the reaction that we should all have when we come face to face with God in the flesh. They fall down and they worship him. They find Jesus, the God of the universe, in flesh. They see the visible image of the invisible God, and they react in the only way that makes sense to somebody who comes in contact with that. They give him all of their worship. They find this child, this toddler, who is the very face of God, and they worship him. Can you imagine seeing the face of God in a toddler? 
I was thinking about this a couple days ago because we had the Carlton box over at our house for dinner. And their little guy, Robert, is 18 months old, 17 months. I'm like, that's, that's what Jesus would have looked like to these wise men. It's this little toddler saying, ma, 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 and don't say banana in front of him or you're going to be in big trouble. Right. Can you imagine that to see the face of God? You are awesome. Thank you. <clears throat> I want you to notice this. I think this is key in this story. Everyone who's actually present with Jesus, like physically with him in the story, the magi, the shepherds that we talked about last week, the angels, everyone who's actually with Jesus worships him. The ones who actually come into contact with God in the flesh, they worship him. It's those who are hostile and push away or those who are indifferent and say, it doesn't matter for me. They're the ones that go these other directions. But the ones who actually see Jesus, who get to know Jesus, they worship. And for those other groups, ones who don't, That brings their destruction. Eventually, Herod dies. And Jesus and his family are free to return to Israel. Matthew recounts this at the end of chapter 2 of his gospel. If you still have your Bible open, Matthew chapter 2, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother, and they went back to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So upon the death of Herod, Joseph is finally able to take his family back from Egypt into Israel. And now he takes his family to settle, not in Bethlehem, but Nazareth. Nazareth. This fulfills multiple Old Testament prophecies, which is pretty cool. You see Jesus in the Old Testament says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, that he will be called out of Egypt, but that he will be called a Nazarene. Thousands of years before Jesus, all those things are said And it all works out almost like God knows exactly what he's doing. Isn't that amazing? As we finish this study today, I just want you to kind of come back to this for a minute. I truly believe these scriptures give us a model for our life. One that we all have to face at some point. We all have to make a choice in our life. And nobody else can make your choice for you. If you're a young person like you guys, your parents don't make you this choice just because they bring you to church. If you've been indifferent to Jesus for a long time and you're sitting in this room, you cannot remain indifferent. There is a choice that you have to make at some point in your life. 
You can either grow hostile to Jesus, like so many people are doing today, because he challenges your ideas of what life should be, what life should look like. You can act indifferent to him as if he doesn't matter to you at all and pretend like it doesn't matter if he is exactly who he says he is. And that might feel like the safe play to a lot of people, but it's not because it leads to the same place as hostility. Ultimately, it leads to if you do not embrace Christ, then he does not embrace you. So you can grow hostile, you can grow indifferent, or you can seek Jesus and you can worship him. Like the magi, like the shepherds, like the angels, you can see the glory of God face to face and worship him. And realize he is who he says he is. And realize this is all a part of this massive story of God bringing his people back to him because he loves you. We all make this choice. Or maybe we try to put it off and at the very end of our lives, it, we, just, we just are what we are. And I know we can't go find baby Jesus in a house somewhere and, and see his face, but he has made himself so clearly known to us. And he invites us to give our whole lives to him, to worship him. My prayer for us this morning is that we will see the face of God in the glory of Jesus, that he will reveal himself to every one of us in our hearts so that we can know he is exactly who he says he is, God in the flesh, worthy of all of our praise and our worship. So my question as we finish today is simple. What will you choose? Let's pray.